0: My name is Kathy Granzales, and my husband and I, Mike, have gone to movement now for about a year and a half. We came the first Sunday at the invitation of my daughter, Lindsay, and her husband, Ben, who came here, and my first reaction was that it was a church of 14-year-olds carrying car seats, and uh, I told Lindsay that. I said, it's a really nice church, but I don't see anyone that looks like me. I think there's now 12 of us. We have our own movement group. It looks like a progressive commercial. Um, but in a year and a half, I've come to love this church. And I, a little bit of background even before that, I have walked with the Lord my entire life. Uh, in fact, my parents tell me I was at nine months, Jesus in the manger for a Christmas thing. So um so I come with a, a lot of church background, and when I, um, about 10 years ago, um, after raising kids, my kids were gone, I really got serious about looking for a church. I said, I've never been someone who can just come to church, sit down and go home, sit down and go home. To me, the church is a family, it's a place to invest, it's a place to have relationship and build build relationship and serve Christ together, and that's what I was looking for, so By the time I came to movement, I had spent six to eight years trying to find a church. And I recognized there's churches on every corner. I don't mean I physically couldn't find any. I meant when I went in, I would, um, in my type A way, once I found a church that I thought could be a fit, I would ask to meet with the pastor and I would go sit with the pastor and I'd say, look, let me tell you, uh, this is who I am. And I would say, you know... I am not a congregant that can come just, I can't just sit and leave and sit and leave. I need to be invested in the church. And I was raised in a family where my dad was an Air Force colonel and he was also the pastor of the church. So I absolutely get hierarchy. I get leadership. I get bureaucracy. I get all that. But do you have a need for someone who has a gifting to teach? Do you have a need for that? And over and over again, I would be told, oh, absolutely, yes, we would love to have you come be in our church. So I would go sit in the church, and I would sit for a year and a half, two years, and I would knock on doors, and I would make inquiries, and after 18 months or so, I would realize they don't need me here. I mean, TikTok, the game's locked. Nobody else can play. They have their places set. They have their people in place. So I would go to my dear, uh, long-suffering husband and say, we got to go. I can't go to this church anymore. And so by the time I came to movement, that had happened three times. And so Mark will tell you, when I first started seeing I could have a place here, I went and met with Mark. And Mike and I sat down with him, and I said, Mark, here's the deal. I said, I like your church, and I like you, but I can't go to a church where I'm not needed. And I told him again, I said, I feel like God's called me to teach, and, and if and I get bureaucracy, you can't let crazy people up here. So I get that that it needs to be earned. I get that you have to trust me. But do you need me? Do you need somebody with gray hair? Do you need, will you allow a woman to stand here? Do you need me? Because if you don't, just tell me now. You'll be doing me a favor. I, it'll save two years of my life. And I don't have that many years left. <laughs> so please tell me if you don't, if you don't need me. And Mark said, yeah, we need you. We need you here. So again, I took that for what it was worth. We continued coming, but here's the difference. About two weeks later, I get a call from Mark and he said, you know, we've got these meetings on Monday where we, the church leadership comes together and we project where we're going in the next six weeks in services. And would you come be a part of that? We'd like your input. We need various uh, uh, ages and people to weigh in on what what to speak on. Would you come do that? Now, to him, that was a a phone call. (laughs) This is how I reacted when I hung up the phone. (laughs) I looked at my husband and I said, for the first time in eight years, I think they need us. I think they could use us. And that was a year and a half ago. And so, first of all, I tell that to you because that's the man who's leading this church. And you should know that. You should know that this is a man who needs you, whatever your gifts are, whatever your callings are. This is a young church. We're getting ready to move into a building where our size is going to multiply and triple and four times. And so whatever you're gifting, whatever you're called to do, this is a man who will listen. This is a leadership who needs you. And I thank Mark and I thank you for allowing me to be here today with that. And that's just the warm-up. I just start teaching. And, and, and I hope I don't suck because then you'll have to text Mark after the service and say, send her on to the next place. So anyway, as Mark was talking about today, today we're talking about the parables of Jesus. And we just came off a series of, we called Bless, where it talked about our um, co- contribution to the community and how we take the word of Christ and share it with our neighbors. We're starting a series on parables, and so first of all, I just kind of want to define to you what a parable was. We don't hear that word in our culture today, but back then, in the Jewish uh, uh, in the Jewish culture, Jewish heritage, that's what they called very unique storytelling. And what a parable was was it was an, a the the uh, um, a device, a literary device, in which you could take common stories, a common uh, word that the masses would understand. But it would have a higher meaning, it was an analogy of sorts. I call it a parallel story. You had the basic story, which was the down-to-earth part, and then you had the higher meaning. And Jesus was brilliant at these. Jesus had a way of speaking that gave a message to all the masses, but most of the time he was targeting a higher message, and usually that message was to the Pharisees. And that's what we see today. It'll the parables uh, require us to sort of mentally dig in to what Jesus is saying. Our scripture today is from Matthew. It's Matthew twenty-two, one through fourteen, page five ninety-two. If you have the Bibles in front of your uh, under your table, and let me first set the stage, both historically and in Jesus' ministry, and also pictorially, what it looks like during this period. Jesus had already started his ministry, and by this time, he was getting a following. This was a time in history where the Jews had a firm belief that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was coming. They had a firm belief that at some point a Messiah would come rescue them all, and that this Messiah would become their king. So the Jews at that time knew that. Well, Jesus came not in the manner that was expected. He was born of a woman. He grew up a carpenter. He didn't wear regal robes. He didn't walk around with a scepter and have uh, 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 servants following him, but he called himself the Messiah. Now, he could be taken as a crazy man, Many people did, but over time, and by the time we get to this point in Matthew, Jesus is getting a following. People are starting to follow him, one, because his message resonates, but two, he had started doing miracles. And at that point, people had to sit up and listen, and they were going door to door. Have you heard about this Jesus? I heard he's speaking over here. Hey, come with me. Bring a lunch. I heard he's over here by the Sea of Galilee. Let's go listen to him talk. So the common people were beginning to follow him, literally follow him around, sit with him as he teaches, begin to listen to him. There was a second group listening, and that was the Pharisees. That was the ruling elite. That was the authority of the day. There was no separation of church and state. Israel was a theocracy. The church was the state. So the ruling elite were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Together they were called the Sanhedrin. It would be like our house of Representatives. They made the rules. They made the laws, they were wealthy, they were well-connected, they were well-dressed, and frankly, they were arrogant and righteous. It is said that the Pharisees had over a thousand laws that you had to obey in order to be found righteous. And so it was a standard that most of the people in Israel could never meet, and they knew it. And so it was sort of a parallel society. You had the ruling Pharisees and Sanhedrin in their wonderful robes and their holiness and going around and talking about how great they were and how righteous they were. And then they had the normal citizenry, the normal people. So when Jesus was speaking to this group, if you can picture it in your mind, he's probably leaning on a rock or talking, and with him are three groups of people. They're his disciples who were followers, believed him to be the Messiah, and were there to assist him and, and learn from him and ultimately spread his word. There was the common people, the people sitting on the ground who had heard about him, brought their lunch, they're coming to hear, and then usually ringed around the back, there were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not fans. They were not there to learn. They were not there to be blessed. They were not there to change their mind. They were there to take notes, to begin to see what is this guy saying, because everything coming out of Jesus's mouth was was a threat to them. It was a threat to their authority. It was a threat to their wealth. It was a threat to their message. And all of a sudden, it was getting a little bit hot in there because people were starting to believe him. It was okay when Jesus was a crazy person. He was just a crazy person out there. But all of a sudden, the Pharisees start noticing that there are people who are listening. There are people paying attention. It starts to get nervous, makes them very nervous. Now, Jesus held no illusions. He knew they weren't fans. In fact, in John, it says that Jesus already knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they said of him. And he said that he perceived that he was that, uh, that he perceived that they were enemies of him. At the same time, the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was talking in these parables. The Bible tells us in Matthew, right before this chapter, that the Pharisees, while listening to these parables, perceived he was talking about them. (laughs) When he was making those pointed remarks about authority and about um, arrogance and about self-righteousness, the Pharisees had said, huh, that sounds like us. I think he's talking about us. So when uh, in um, Matthew, this chapter in verse two, Jesus starts out by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and that is the way most parables start the kingdom of heaven is like. He's going to start to build an analogy. So let's talk about what was heaven to Jewish people. I mean, we know what heaven is to us, but what was heaven? Was it a place? Was Did you die and go there? Well, back then, even as today, if you were to line up 10 Jewish people, you would get 10 different answers on what heaven is. They did not perceive heaven To be the way we do today, which is death and a place you go after death. But they did the Torah, which is essentially the Old Testament, the Jewish biblical book does talk about a place of unity with God, and that place depends on righteousness, and it says that your acts in life will be rewarded and negative actions will be punished. So the Jewish people knew that there was some right and wrong in there, but to that end, The Pharisees had essentially, for all intents and purposes, made it impossible to reach that place of unity with God because they had so many rules, so many do's and don'ts, and they changed daily. They usually changed according to what the Pharisees wanted to do and not do. And so by the time Jesus walked the earth, those rules had produced a heartless, cold, arrogant brand of righteousness. And even more importantly, it had uh, made a scenario where man was accountable to man, not God. You had to act a certain way around the Pharisees because they were judge and jury, not God. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, two things were happening. He was about to reveal a new way to heaven a new way to righteousness. And the second thing he was about to do was throw a grenade into the theology of the Pharisees. He was getting ready to do something that was a threat to their way of life. He was about to reveal a radical, revelatory, and completely freeing way to uh, reach unity with God to the Jewish people at his feet. So he starts the parable and he says, the king sent his servants to those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they refused to come. Again, the king sent his servants out and he says, maybe you didn't understand my first invitation, but come on, my, the banquet is ready, the bulls and calves are killed, and everything's ready for the wedding feast. So again, take a detour here. The way invitations worked in Jewish culture, they didn't have phone. They didn't have mail. There were no save-the-date cards that went out. So the the save-the-date card was literally servants going to the invited and saying, save the date, save this time because the king's son is getting married and you're invited. You can come, so just don't put anything on your calendar around this time We'll be back to tell you when the wedding feast is ready, and that's exactly what happened. In that time as well, because they were sort of spontaneous, it was protocol at the time that you were, if you were invited to a big event like that, they provided everything, even your clothes. Come as you are. We're going to give you clothing when you get there. It's going to be a party. Everything is ready. So in this story, who's invited? Well, the rich, the powerful, the important. In other words, Jesus was saying, the king is inviting all the important people here, speaking of the Pharisees. Who was not invited was you and me. <laughs> the, the, the people who sat at the feet of Jesus, they, would, they didn't even expect to be invited. They knew we are not worthy of that invitation. We're not going to be uh, heading to the, 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 the um, wedding of the, uh, royalty. The closest thing, that I can help us to understand this today, is the only royalty that we see on a regular basis in our culture today is across the pond in England. How many of you, I hope I can see you, how many of you watched, well, first of all, was anyone invited to William and uh, Kate's wedding? Harry and Meghan, no? Okay, so did anybody watch it on TV? Yeah, a few hands watched it. Well, you were one of 17.6 million for William and Kate, and for Harry and Meghan, 11.5 million people watched. But let me tell you, this is where my generation trumps yours. How many of you watched their dad and mom, Charles and Diana? See, I told you, there's like three of us here. So, yeah, yeah. 1981, St. Paul's Cathedral, 750 million people, 74 countries watched that wedding. I watched it. From a couch in Virginia Beach at 3 in the morning on the phone with my best friend, predicting, as we were right, that this will never work out. And But here's an interesting thing. None of us expected to be invited. I did not sit on the couch and say, I should be there next to Elton John. They must have lost it in the mail. I didn't get the phone call. None of us had any expectation of ever being invited. And that's exactly how the people sitting at Jesus' feet felt. Went right over their head. They said, this is not a party that I'm going to be invited to. But let's go on in that that scripture. Matthew 5 through 7 says, those who were invited ignored the invitation. They made light of it. It said they treated it with contempt. It was beneath them. Boy, those are darts going right at the Pharisees as Jesus is talking. But they can't do a thing about it because it's only words, and that just annoyed them to no end. The scripture says they were too busy. One went to his farm, another to his business. Others got the invitation. This is a bit harsh. They killed the messenger. Hearing this, it says the king was furious, as he should be, So the next thing we realize is it was the king's expectation that this invitation would be responded to and that they would come. This was not just an invitation to come to dinner. This was a wedding. This was a celebratory feast. This was his son. Any of you ever had a one-year birthday party for your child or granddaughter or grandchild? Nobody came. You get that offense. Okay, where is everybody? The scripture tells us that the, wedding, that the uh, invitation was ignored for a few reasons which we can apply in 2023. Number one, it was ignored because they held contempt for the invitation, which is essentially contempt for the inviter. They just didn't like him. They didn't like who he was. They didn't like what he stood for. I'm not coming to your party. The invitation is ignored because the guests were holding out for something better imagine. In my business, I'm a realtor and in my business, I do a lot of seminars. And a few years ago, I tried to do, started to do home buyer seminars, which meant I was aiming at younger buyer, younger people, millennials. Now we did all this social media stuff and we had our event up there and we had like hundreds of people say they were interested. And I said, what the heck does that mean? You're interested. So I own three millennials. So I went to one of them. I said, Christian, What does this mean? They said, they're interested. And Christians said to me, oh, that just means they'll come if something else doesn't come up that's better. (laughs) That's all right then. Don't know how to do a head count on that, but okay. So that was an excuse. People said, I'll just, you know, it's an invitation, I'll come, nothing else comes better. The invitation was ignored because of priorities in life were deemed important. It said one went to his farm, one went to his business. And let me tell you, in 2023, there's a whole lot of priorities that come before being here on a Sunday morning, being here and worshiping, being here and expe- experiencing the word of God. 91% of Americans say that one degree or another, they believe in a God. There's very few true atheists in the in, in, in the United States, at least very few. They believe in a divinity. They believe in a God. But the latest uh, Gallup poll from about 10 years ago said the number of people attending church on a regular basis is about 31%. 31%, so that means 60% are off doing something else. Even though they believe in God, they believe in God's importance, they wanna raise their kids in a godly household, they're not here. Why? And the top three reasons is there's too much to do on a Sunday morning. I've got soccer, I've got baseball. We were out late Saturday night, the kids need to sleep in. Again, that, that excuse, is good today, just as it was in, in uh, that culture, priorities in life are deemed more important. And then finally, the invitation was ignored and the reaction was violence because the message was deemed a threat to those who received it. And that's where Jesus, again, is doing two things. Number one, he's speaking directly to the Pharisees, the ruling class of the time. He's saying, I know what you think of me. I know you hold my message in contempt. I know you have priorities that you deem more important. Then my message, and at the end, I know what you're thinking. He was foreshadowing his own death. He was saying, I know you're already planning to kill me. You're already planning to come after me. Then Jesus said in the parable, he says, the king says, okay, we're going to flip the script here. The people I invited aren't coming, so I'm going to turn it right around. I'm going to do something radical. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something that has never been done before. He takes his servants and he says, look, the wedding feast is ready. The decorations are up. The clothing's laid out on the beds for guests. Go to the thoroughfares. Go to the outskirts of town. Go to the highways and byways. Go and invite everybody you can come to the wedding feast. So it says the servants went out. They gathered as many people as they could, both bad and good both bad and good, both sinful and righteous. Jesus says, go bring them all. And when he did, it says the wedding feast was full. People were there. This time, the invitation went to the common people. This time, the invitations went to those who didn't feel worthy. Those who never thought they would attend a royal wedding. That 22-year-old sitting on a couch in Virginia Beach on the phone. I got the invitation when Jesus said that. This time, you come to the wedding. Invite the good and the bad. All of the sudden, following the rules was not a requirement for entry into that relationship with God. The open invitation was sent to all of those who thought they weren't worthy. They would never be invited and they could never be good enough. Jesus is standing at that point in front of a whole group of people for whom this was radical news. This was radical good news. This gave them hope. Hey, there's a place for me. Maybe I can be invited. And at the same time, it was a radical threat to the ruling class of the time who held on with white, white-knuckled a grip to their power and their wealth and their way of life. Now, here comes an odd scripture that throws in here, and it says, when the king came to view the guests, he saw one man had not put on the garments that the king had provided. He said to the man, how did you get in there without putting on the appropriate garments? And the king said to the attendant, tie him up, throw him away into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of feet because many are invited and few are chosen. Now, that sounds, sounds like a radical thing to do for someone who didn't dress right, okay? But what Jesus is doing in that is, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, look, your righteousness for years has been those regal robes you wear. The righteousness for years has been your pretense. Jesus didn't believe it. The pretense that you follow all the rules. Your righteousness for years has been your self-proclaimed goodness before God. You have clothed yourself in that goodness and that righteousness, and you have even literally clothed yourself in the finest clothes to prove your righteousness. And I'm telling you, don't try to get into my wedding because those mean nothing to me. Those are not the ticket. Those are not the way you get into the wedding. Remember, Jesus, Jesus knew his audience. Back in, um, in a little forward in Matthew 23, he actually says, do not be like the Pharisees. For what they preach, they do not practice. They give you a heavy burden. They tell you to lift, they give you a heavy burden and they don't lift a finger to help you. They do all their works to be seen by men. They take pleasure in being placed in a place of honor. And I'm telling you, said Jesus, whoever exalts himself with haughtiness and empty pride will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be raised to honor. Jesus said, you exalt yourself, you try to get into my wedding with your arrogance and your pride, I'm gonna throw you right out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now the Pharisees in the back are getting hot under the collar because he's speaking right to them. You know, Mike and I had the privilege in 2019 of going to Israel, and I had an experience that brought this to light for me. One day, it was a Saturday, and we had been at the Sea of Galilee all day, just a typical group of American tourists. And so our tour guide said to us, he said, you know, tonight I've got a really special treat. I'm not usually able to do this. But we've made reservations at a tier two Orthodox resort. Was it a five-star resort, honey? I can't remember. It felt like a really nice place. And he says, and we happen to be there on a Saturday. So you're going to see these Orthodox Hasidic Jews who are there for the weekend, breaking Sabbath, and we're going to have dinner with them. Okay. So, wow, that's cool. So we show up like we're really American, you know, with hot, sweaty, salt in our hair. And we've got shorts on and, you know, don't mess with Texas T-shirts and and all this stuff. And and we show up and I'm thinking this is going to be a party. It's going to be fun. And I'm going to go into my reporter role and sit at their tables and find out all about them, you know? Well, boy, was I in for a surprise. We get there. And first of all, in Israel, virtually every restaurant is kosher and it's blessed by a rabbi, and they follow um, kosher dietary rules. But this place was what they call level two kosher. And that meant that it had to um, uh, adhere to an even stricter rules because it was for the highest of the highest orthodoxy in um, Israel. And so we were told there's only two places in Israel that did this. So we were going to have dinner there. So we go in, and we're sitting in this large sort of cafeteria-style room, and these families start coming in. Now, first of all, you're talking wealth. On the way in, we pass Mercedes and BMWs in the parking lot. We come in and these families start coming in and they are dressed to the nines. I mean, the men have their black robes and their curl locks and their shawls and the fur hats and, and the women would put the Kardashians to shame. These women had custom dresses matching their nails, matching their purses and their shoes and their hat. And the kids looked like they walked out of catalogs and they all came up to their tables and started doing their prayers, and they completely ignored us. I mean, we began to get looks that said, why are you here? Why do you, you you don't belong here. Why are you even breathing the air we're breathing? And we're absolutely not happy that you're here. At first, it was just looks. But then we started lining up to get food, and this group would cut in front of us, push us out of the way. My husband, Mike, went to get fish, and the guy in front of him took the whole pan of fish and poured it on his plate so Mike couldn't have any. And if you've met Mike, I will tell you, he ended up with fish, okay? But my point is, one one lady, one of our people in our our group said, boy, they're passive-aggressive. I said, there's nothing passive about it, honey. They are aggressive. They do not want us here. And while we were sitting there, a young, a young Jewish couple walked up to us, and it turns out they're American, and they were there visiting uh, his mom and dad in Israel. So he was curious, what are you doing here? So we told him, we're on a tour group, and we're here. And I said to him, I said, I get the feeling they don't want us here. And he goes, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't want you here. So I, I told Mike afterwards, I said, I got that much of a glimpse of what it was like to to live in a culture where you're not wanted, you're not good enough, you're dirty, you're not righteous, and all these people are. And again, it tells you how radical this news was that Jesus was looking at this group sitting on the ground, painting a picture of the doors of heaven, opening to those who never expected to enter, who felt they didn't deserve it, they couldn't earn it, And in other words, he was talking to you and me. He was talking to a group who otherwise would never have a chance of salvation. The message of the gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is reserved for those who recognize they don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. It's a message of grace. It's a message of God's unmerited favor. And at that point, Matthew 22:15 15 says, then the Pharisees went and consulted and plotted together how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. They said, this is, a, this is too far. He cannot go to this group who wants to come into our place of living, shake up our authority structure. We need to do something about this. This parable is an invitation to you and me to come to a feast. It's a celebration that we're no more deserving of than being at St. Paul's Cathedral for a wedding. But let me take you back to that, our experience in Israel. We were not welcome by the guests that were there. But why were we there? Because the owner of the inn said, you're welcome. Because the owner who held the keys said, come on in. Because the man in charge said, this is my place, come on in. In this parable, Jesus is giving an invitation to all of us who can't live up to the rules. He's saying, my death on the cross is payment for your rule breaking so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven on my merit on the on on the death of the, uh, my death on the cross many of you have already accepted the invitation you have at some point said jesus i believe you i believe you died for me i believe that you're you are the payment for my sins and because of that i'm worthy and i'll be invited if not You haven't accepted that invitation. We'll make that invitation in the service today, and there will be people in the back and at the uh, welcome tables back here to talk with you. But the final thing on my heart is, because I do believe many of us have accepted that invitation, is that the invitation was not just to a dinner. It was to a celebratory feast. John 10.10 says, I've come that they not only have life, which is dinner, but they have it in abundance. They have it overflowing. It is a feast. And when I'm walking around and I'm hanging around Christians, a lot of times I get the impression, and myself, I've dealt with that, where I'm getting through, I'm living life, but life is hard. Marriage is hard. Kids are hard. The job is hard. Money is hard. And God, I'm, I'm living for you, but I do not feel like I'm living an abundant life. I don't feel like I've come to a wedding, a celebratory feast. I feel like I'm just getting by. And I thank you for dinner, but I'm looking for that celebratory feast. And I wanted to close by just talking about what is that abundant life? What is the abundant life that Jesus has promised us? Because there is a way to grasp it. There is a way to walk in it. First of all, it's not things. It's not stuff. It's not toys. It's not money. If that were the case, all millionaires would be happy people, and they're not. They're not, for the most part. So what is abundant life? First of all, it's peace. It is confident, and his care for you and its purpose in your life. Jesus uh, promises peace in the midst of hardship. Philippians 4, 7 says God's peace shall be yours. It is a soul that's content with the current state of mind. It's a peace which transcends all understanding that will guard your heart and mind. Real quick story, I used to work for the 700 Club. Back in my early days with Pat Robertson, my job was to come into his dressing room after every show and take notes, which he told me what he liked about a show and what he didn't. I was usually a young 24-year-old girl standing in a room with a with a lot of suits, and Pat in his makeup chair, and I was just a fly on the wall until everybody cleared, and then I could run in and very nervously ask him his for, to take his notes, and then I'd be gone. But on one day... In 1983, I came in, and as he was sitting in that chair, someone rushed in the room and said, Pat, our television station in Lebanon has just been bombed. A Katusha rocket has come and hit the station. We don't know anything that that. We don't know if our staff was hurt. We don't know. But, Pat, we need to pray. We need to see what's going on. And I remember, to the point I'm telling you, 40, 40 years later, Pat sat there, and what he said was, he thought for a minute, and he said, For I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for peace and not evil, and you will have hope in your final outcome. He said, and he looked at the men, and he said, go find out about my staff, but God's promises for us are for good and not evil. And I'm believing for life, and I'm believing that God's plans are not finished there. And I sat there as a young 24-year-old, and I remember I was looking at Pat as in the mirror, and I said, I want that. I want that. Whatever that is that says when a Katusha rocket hits my life, the first thing out of my my mouth is scripture. That said God is present. God is here. God is in control. I want that. That's what I want. That's abundant life. The next thing God said is you can have confidence in my plans for you. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says we are assured that all things work together and fit into the plan for uh, good for those who love God and, and are called according to his purpose. So when that when the, the earth shakes you, we have the, the word of God that says, I can believe that even in this difficult time, even when my um, my son is in addiction, even when my spouse doesn't like me, even when money is short, all things... Work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And God, I know I'm called according to your purpose. So I thank you today that it's okay that you're in the midst of this. That's abundant life. That's the feast. And the final thing God promises us, he says, I will give you purpose. Boy, that's hard. That's really hard. And I hear that a lot, that we are a lot of people wandering and saying, I'm going to work every day and I've got a marriage and I'm raising kids, but I feel no purpose. Is this all there is? Is this all there is? Again, thanks, God, for the dinner. But where's the abundant life? I love the writings of Oswald Chambers. He said, we all have times when there are no flashes of light and no apparent thrill to life where we experience nothing but the daily routine with its common everyday task. The routine of life is actually God's way of saving us between our times of great inspiration which come from him. Don't always expect God to give you his thrilling moments, but learn to live in the common times of drudgery by life and the power of God. That's abundant life that's abundant life. When you can get up every morning and say, God, boy, I've got a meeting to go to, and I've got this appointment to go to, and the last thing I want to do is to go to lunch with this person. But God, I thank you today. I thank you today that my steps before me are ordered, that there's people for me to meet, there's things for me to do, there's people for me to touch, there's people for me to pray for, there's people for me to interact with, that when I leave their life today, they'll be touched by you through me. That's abundant life. That's purpose, right there. That's purpose. You know, I'm on a first—I love Diet Coke. That's—that's that's a flaw. I get it, but I love Diet Coke. I'm on a first-name basis with every uh, drive-through in McDonald's because they have the best Diet Coke. Any of the Diet Coke people know that, right? I'm on a first—thank you, Amen. So I—I on a first-name basis with all of them, and I tell you what—I bet their lives are not exciting when they go through. But every morning I go through God. How do I bless Marabella today? God, how do I bless Beth today? How do I bless these people today? That's abundant life. That's bringing the kingdom of heaven into our lives today. And that's what God's called us to. That's the difference. It's not, we live in a sinful world. We're going to run into bumps in the road. But the difference is I we invite God every day into our lives. How do we change that? I had a friend call me this week and she said, Kathy, I'm just in a panic. I just got word from my landlord. I've lived in this house for 14 years. I have to be out by spring. Can you help me? And I said, Edie, I'll do all I can to help me. But you know what's exciting about this? How's God going to use you in the new place? God needs to move you because there's more people to meet. You have to have more neighbors. Who's where? are you going to walk the dog? Who are you going to meet? Edie, look at it like God's hand is on you. And God has a plan for your life. God has a reason he needs you in a different neighborhood. And he's just using your landlord to do it because without that, you'd never go. So God's moving you on to that. And when you start doing that, your life will change. You will change it, the climate of the lives around you. You will become an ambassador of that abundant life. And in doing so, you're going to invite and welcome others into that feast that Jesus Christ has offered to all of us. And that's my invitation to you today, is if you have already accepted that invitation and walk with Christ, take it to another level. Begin to wake up every day with that relationship and say, God, how can I turn this to somebody else? And if you have not had that invitation, the kingdom of heaven is like a king inviting you to a royal wedding, accept that invitation today. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this group. I thank you for your message. And I thank you, Father, that you are a God who invited all of us. I thank you that I did not go to the wedding of Charles and Diana, but I was invited to your wedding, that I can walk in, that I can sit at the table with a king because you paid the price, you paid with the, the death of your son, a gift to forgive the sins, take away the rules, bring in righteousness, and allow us to sit at your table. I pray today that there are those who will accept that invitation And I pray today for the rest of us that we learn to walk every day in the abundant life that you promised. I pray that we go wake up every day saying, God, thank you for the wedding. Thank you for the feast. Let's go out and celebrate and let's invite others in, no matter what they look like and how they're dressed. Let's invite them in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.